one change you've seen. I'm in the garden at Yard 58, Cafe Queenscliff that has become my favourite. Mostly because of the phenomenal coffee, but the bird song is also charming the soft coffee. Although the flubbers are unpleasant. Mariner flights resumed on the 23rd, and in the following days, the air crews photographed the coasts on the Getz Ice Shelf, Wrigley Gulf, Peter the First Island, Marguerite Bay, part of Adelaide Island, and part of Charcot Island. Captain Defec transferred to the destroyer USS Brownson, who returned from the Eastern Group in the Ross Sea to attempt a landing on Charcot Island, but heavy pack ice prevented the ship's boats approaching closer than a quarter mile. Final mariner flights on the 1st and 2nd of March came to nothing when the Antarctic autumn weather closed the efforts down after just half an hour on each occasion. On the 3rd, orders came through from Admiral Cruzen. Finish up and head for Rio de Janeiro, the three ships arriving there on the 18th of March. Now the central group. The north wind made a 100 mile ice reconnaissance along the 180th meridian, while its helicopter, making possibly the second powered rotary wing flight in Antarctica, reconnoitred a further 30 miles beyond that. The North Wind, the first icebreaker to challenge the sea ice of the Ross Sea, broke a path through ice as much as three metres thick. A zigzag channel in the North Wind's wake offered passage to the thinner skinned ships, most of the non-combatant naval vessels fielding only 13 millimetres of steel at the waterline, which sounds like a lot until you try pressing it against millions of tonnes of solid water and bet your life on it keeping you above the sea surface. Trying to stay in the centre of this narrow, shifting, convoluted channel, most of the ships couldn't bring to the party, and they each received ice damage in the transit toward the Bay of Wales. These weren't the first steel hulls in Antarctic waters, but they were the first steel hulls to try to push so far into the pack, and the Austral summer of 1946-47 proved a particularly bad year for sea ice cover that late in the season. Only the thick-skinned, bluff-bowed icebreaker remained undented and undaunted by its dance with the ice, because that's what icebreakers are for. The USS Senate, a Balao-class attack submarine, tested under ice sonar during Operation High Jump, but repeatedly received damage from contact with ice which, due to the boat's low profile, regularly rode up and over the bows and threatened the sail, the superstructure halfway along most submarines, housing its instruments, surface running controls and lookout post. Running repairs made to the sub's rudder constituted the first time divers were employed in Antarctic waters since Willy Heinrich recorked the hull of the Gauss. Lieutenant Commander Thompson and Chief Petty Officer Dixon donned rebreather units to examine and try to fix damage done to the Senate's rudders on the 1st of January 1947. Submerging the Senate offered respite from the ice damage, but Balao-class hulls could only manage eight and a half knots underwater, less than half the full speed possible at the surface. So the Senate faced either being left behind or receiving further ice-mediated denting and buckling. Cruzen faced a dilemma. Take the 85 crew off the Senate and leave the boat to the ice, or put the north wind to task, extricating the Senate from the pack, potentially endangering the other three thin-skinned ships. Cruzen ordered the boat towed north to hold station off Scott Island where it could repair and test systems and act as an additional data point in subsequent meteorological work. And I'm going to have to pull the pin there because it's raining too hard. Fucking plovers.
Hey Ice Coffee listeners, I'm on the shoreline at Queenscliff near the Pilot's Pier and coming to the close of what's been a pretty good day in spite of being away from my family. I went for a swim with the Australian Fur Seals this morning, found a copy of Eklund and Beckman's Polar Research and Discovery during the International Geophysical Year at the local bookshop and I just had a play with a puppy, 16 week old, three quarter Kelpie, one quarter Jack Russell Terrier. And it was very, very, <laughs> it was very good for me after 25 years of living with cats and cat people. Um, yeah. Time with a dog is always good, but time with a puppy is something special. Hooking back into Operation High Jump. The north wind took the Senate in tow, but extricating Captain Eisenhower's charge from the ice took three days, as the icebreaker had to keep shuttling back to its other charges to maintain a pool of open water around them as the wind and tide shifted the sea ice about. The Senate achieved a number of Antarctic firsts, but proved unequal to the conditions. With the Senate as safe as a submarine stationed off Scott Island can be, the North Wind returned to the task of finding and breaking out a path on the 6th of January, the Sikorsky helicopter and the Grumman Duck scout plane serving to make good on missteps the ships had to backtrack from. The naval aviators joining the dots between thin ice patches from altitude. The ships in the care of the icebreaker received their share of damage. The Mount Olympus stove in on five of its forward frames and the Merrick was holed forward. War veteran sailors did expert work controlling and repairing the damage done by ice, and while a lot colder than the damage control they had engaged in due to Japanese torpedoes, the situation was less fraught because the ice wasn't actively trying to kill them, just passively not caring about their survival. At one point, a giant iceberg passed by the three ships and caught the edge of the growing pan of sea ice in which they lay, spinning the entire ensemble without slowing its passing or altering its course. I don't know at what point the test took place, as the MGM-produced movie chopped up the timeline a lot, but at some moment, members of the crew of the Mount Olympus donned newly developed cold-water survival suits and jumped in among the brash ice. Their hamming it up in the water made good newsreel-type footage and demonstrated the suits could help sustain life in near-freezing water for up to an hour. I don't see any snorkels attached to the dive masks, and I doubt the suits allowed efficient duck diving but I'll mark that as the first occasion anyone went freediving in Antarctic waters. The crew of the Mount Olympus caught several emperor penguins to carry north, and footage of a rockhopper penguin turns up from somewhere. But again, timing and geographic sequence is hard to pick because of the MGM edits. I don't know what became of any of the captured birds. Admiral Cruzen ordered the Western Group to station at Scott Island so its Martin Mariners could extend the ice reconnaissance and get the Central Group out of an apparently impassable ice trap they found themselves in. The North Wind only just able to maintain a body of open water against the encroaching sea ice, and two ships narrowly avoiding bergs making their own inexorable path through the surrounding frozen sea. Poor flying weather precluded aid from the Mariners, but the North Wind finally cracked the code and broke into open water beyond the pack leading its charges to the Bay of Wales on the 15th of January. The bay changed substantially since the USASA visit, and the North Wind spent three days busting up around 15 million tonnes of ice in the Bay of Wales to allow the other ships Space and Shelf Ice Wharf for unloading. A reconnaissance party found the remains of Little America 3, the site having shifted a mile and a half in the intervening years of, of glacial progress. The Yancey tied up to dead man anchored lines and began unloading on the 18th. Naval construction battalion teams, known as CBs, began bridging crevasses, dynamiting pressure ridges and levelling ground for Little America 4, about two miles from the barrier edge. The Merrick was alongside and unloading on the 19th, and between the three vessels, 10,000 tonnes of equipment and stores went ashore. Seaman Vance Woodall died on the 21st of January during an unloading accident 
during which a runway roller ran away and rolled over him. The fourth and final death during Operation High Jump. The Mount Olympus tied up on the 22nd. Vehicles carried south for trials and use in the Bay of Wales included weasel amphibious tracked cargo carriers, Caterpillar D6 bulldozers, to my knowledge the first use of Caterpillar brand machines in Antarctica, marking the start of a long association between Caterpillar units and Antarctic stations, Cleetrack tractors, jeeps, three axle trucks of some description that I saw in footage from the expedition but can't find any written reference to, and landing vehicle tracked known variously as amph tracks, buffaloes and gators, depending on the model and its application. Dogs sufficient to run 10 sled teams survived their sea voyages and took their place in the hauling roster. Among them, Ricky, born at Little America 2, 12 years earlier. Chief Boson's mate, Robert R. Johnson, who sailed aboard the USS Bear during the USASA age managed one of these teams and recounts in Thomas Henderson's documentary about Johnson's naval service, boats, bawling out his lead dog for shying off course. The dog was trying to avoid crossing the crevasse bridge Johnson stood on while giving his dog its telling off, and the entire team ended up breaking through the snow crust. The monkey managed to extricate his dogs, returning to the handlebars a wiser and much chagrined simian. Vernon Boyd took charge of the vehicles and the loading of their towed sleds, getting the cargo to the Little America 4 site, sighted close to what was visible of Little America 3 above the deposited snow, in as orderly and timely a fashion as possible. CBs are highly regarded by pretty much everyone who ever saw them on task. They get their shit done with a lot of noise, energy and expense, but when the CBs do something, it tends to get done well. Those at the Little America 4 site, under the command of Commander Reinhardt, got building, erecting a Quonset hut, which is the US equivalent of a Nissan hut, a structure which received some attention in episodes recounting Operation Tabern, for administration and maintenance, several slab-sided prefab Wanigan huts, 54 canvas tents on wooden platforms to accommodate the eventual 300-strong contingent occupying Little America 4 at its population peak, and started melting snow with a steam generator and began preparing runways. The original runway plan involved using perforated steel planking, mass-produced modular material developed for the rapid establishment of runways during the war. Planks of steel, also known by its patented name, mast and mat, lightened by perforations and strengthened by longitudinal folds, slot together to provide a rapid assembly hard surface on which aircraft can operate while still offering some drainage. Thousands of tons of the stuff left factories in the USA for distribution across Europe and the Pacific Islands during the conflict, and still turns up in all sorts of situations where a free span of slightly rusty but otherwise nifty steel is just the thing. The later than anticipated arrival saw the planned 5,000 foot mast and mat runway idea abandoned. A 1,000 foot length of mast and mat was assembled to test the material's performance at extreme low temperatures, but hard ice surfaces served for most of the actual flying, with aircraft operating on skis rather than wheels. The first runway suited to the arrival of the aircraft aboard the Philippine Sea was ready by the 25th of January, which is pretty damn quick because Seabees. Seabees also dug a tunnel to connect Little America 4 with Little America 3 and the underground bolt hole was stocked with food and fuel to keep a contingent of 35 personnel alive through an Antarctic winter if conditions should require the ships depart without everyone, 35 Maroons being deemed the worst case scenario. Visits were also made to Little America 2 and 1, though more for the film cameras than because of any stores or equipment left there after Ellsworth and Hollick Canyon ended the last occupation. I did see a tin of Klim powdered milk brought to the surface in the footage so someone dug deep into the buried Q-store. The unloading, which turned into a reloading operation as some equipment returned to the ice wharf during the three-week window the ships lay alongside, having been tested, used to its limits or balked, received three interruptions. The ships putting out to avoid a rogue iceberg, a storm from the south and a strong wind from the north. With the ice conditions iffy and likely to get worse, 
The North Wind led the three thinner-skinned ships back out through the pack on the 6th of February, leaving 197 personnel on the barrier. This unexpected departure robbed the Bay of Wales of the radio navigation support provided by the Mount Olympus's powerful transmitters. Radio equipment removed from the ship and erected in an additional Quonset hut solved this problem, allowing the base to provide navigational aid to any flights out of Little America 4 that encountered adverse weather while on their mission. Now, the goings-on outside the pack aboard the USS Philippine Sea. In 1935, the Douglas DC-3 came about as a sleeping compartment equipped development of the DC-2, itself Douglas' answer to Boeing's 247 airliner, the first twin-engine aircraft able to hold to the US regulations regarding airliner safety standards in being able to maintain flight on a single engine following an engine failure on takeoff. Douglas, by using the same type of extremely strong wing centre section John Northrop developed for his Alpha, Beta, Gamma and Delta airframes, these last two serving Lincoln Ellsworth during his Antarctic expeditions, effectively knocked the Boeing product off the market. In the Boeing aircraft, the main wing spar crossed through the cabin rather rudely, making ingress, egress and cabin service a cumbersome affair. The DC-2 and the larger DC-3 featured an uninterrupted cabin floor, and sometimes it's small things like that that make a big difference in airframe sales. In this instance, it led to Douglas selling 10,000 civil and military variants and another 6,000 DC-3 airframes arising from license build arrangements with Russian and Japanese manufacturers. The DC-3 constituted a tough, reliable aircraft with good range and excellent handling characteristics. It could operate from unprepared strips and, as mentioned earlier, featured an uninterrupted cabin floor that got at the civil sails that kept the airframe in production long enough to catch military contracts an order of magnitude larger than the civil ones. The Boeing 247 flopped as a product in its own right, but the company carried on by incorporating many design elements from the airliner into what became the B-17 Flying Fortress. Military aircrew were expected to take inconvenient wing spars crossing their cabin in their stride, and did exactly that with the B-17. Making 12,000 B-17s in the lead up to and during the Second World War, kept Boeing in coin in spite of losing out to Douglas on the airliner front in the 1930s, and Boeing airframes will return to the narrative ere long. 85 years after the first flight of the DC-3 prototype, examples of the airframe are still making revenue for aviation businesses, and several companies are refitting and re-engineing examples to produce zero-time airframes with more power, capacity and fuel efficiency than ever before. Turbine-powered Basler 67 examples serve the Antarctic programs of several nations and operate in support of Antarctic adventurers and tourist interests, and it seems unlikely they're going to cease doing so anytime soon. But here we're dealing with the first examples of Douglas Workhorse to head to Antarctica. DC-3's taken on US Navy charge were called R4Ds, and this has led to some confusion among the literature addressing this chapter in US Antarctic history. The Philippine Sea carried six R4Ds, not six DC-4s, as I find reported in several books. I can't pass out if the flub came about from several independent misreads of the naval designation, or if one author made the misinterpretation and others followed their lead, but they were definitely not DC-4s, a larger, four-engine Douglas airliner that followed the DC-3 into service in 1942. While smaller than the DC-4, the naval R-4Ds still constituted the largest aircraft anyone ever tried flying off an aircraft carrier to that date. The heaviest aircraft to fly off aircraft carriers were the B-25 Mitchell bombers that took part in the Doolittle raid on Tokyo in 1942, but that's a story for an entirely another podcast series. Hardcore History, episode 65, gives it some attention, and I can't recommend Dan Carlin's output enough. Like the Beach C-45 carried south by the rear, the Operation High Jump R-4Ds were fitted with trimetragon camera arrays for the best-in-war surplus aerial surveying. The 28-metre wingspan of the R-4Ds restricted their potential takeoff run to the 120 feet of deck space forward of the Philippine Sea's island, 
the name given to the starboard side superstructure of an aircraft carrier. Even with the 30 knot headwind the Philippine Sea could provide going at full speed, 120 feet isn't a lot of room for even an unladen airliner to get airborne, so each airframe received four JATO bottles under the trailing edge of the wing centre section. The aircrew spent some time removing everything not necessary to make the flight between the ship and Little America 4, lightening the airframes and thereby decreasing the airspeed required to get airborne, fractions of a knot being important when dealing with a short runway and a full fuel load and a large ship to the back of the head if anything goes awry at the critical moments. Naval Aviator Lieutenant, at the time, Gus Shin, records Rear Admiral Richard Byrd pacing the deck forward of the parked aircraft and repeatedly asking if Shin really thought they could get airborne in such a short distance. A noted white-knuckle flyer, Byrd invited Lieutenant Shin to dine with him in Byrd's stateroom to continue seeking reassurance he wasn't about to die in a fiery mess and then receive a large ship to the back of the head if he rode as a passenger in the first aircraft to depart the ship. Shin, a superlative aviator, kept the reassurances up and Bird did board the first R4D on the 29th of January, Commander William Trigger Hawks in the left seat. Hawks brought the engines up to full power while standing on the tow brakes. With the engines at full noise, he let out the brakes and the aircraft trundled forward. Halfway along the available deck space, Hawks fired off the JATO bottles. The footage makes the takeoff look a lumbering affair. But the, relative speed of the ship, but the relative speed of the ship belies how fast the R4Ds were moving through the air, even before the rocket motors start up. In the footage, plumes of smoke hide the flames, but illustrate how much mass the JATO bottles threw up behind them, Newton's third lowering the plane in the opposite direction with a noticeable heave and giving it the airspeed necessary to safely get clear of the ship without falling into the sea, leaving Bird's white-knuckle concerns behind. The ships of the Central Group spread themselves out along the proposed flight route to offer support to downed aircraft, and the USS Mount Olympus broadcast a radio signal for the aircraft to use as a reference point, navigating their way to the Bay of Wales using their radio direction finding antennae. In addition to being the largest aircraft flown off an aircraft carrier to that date, the R4Ds were also the first aircraft to take off from an aircraft carrier on wheels with an expectation of landing on skis. Naval engineers having designed and fitted slotted aluminium skis around the main and tailwheel assemblies. With the wheels extending about a tenth of their depth beneath the planing surface of the ski assemblies, the aircraft could use a hard runway, but once the wheels sank into a soft snow surface, the skis would take the airframe's weight. This configuration is still in use on Basler 67 turbine conversions of former DC-3s and a similar arrangement is used on twin otters expected to switch between hard and soft surface operations in the cold. The Philippine Sea also carried a Sikorsky HOS-2, which acted as plane guard during the takeoff procedures, flying alongside the ship and ready to rescue anyone from any aircraft that didn't remain aloft and which didn't receive a large ship to the back of the head. The Sikorsky was slated to transfer to Little America 4 aboard one of the other ships of the Central Group once all R4Ds were safely airborne, but it crashed, nulling the need for a second transit through the pack. The first two R4Ds, pushing south against strong headwinds, made the 700 nautical mile flight in six hours, news of their safely touching down at Little America 4, seeing the remaining four aircraft take off in quick succession. At Little America 4, Rear Admiral Byrd was greeted by, among others, Richard III, his son, who lacked enough imagination to do anything other than follow his namesake's well-trodden path. Switched sights for now, down to the western end of the Queenscliff Cut, facing out over Swan Bay on an ebb tide on a very still night. Sat down amongst the salt bush listening to the birds making their way home as the sun sets. And fucking plovers. Most Australian birds don't sound particularly nice. We don't have a lot of great songbirds, but the plovers are something else.
almost feel it's sacrilege speaking into this evening calm. But there's a script to read. Crook weather curtailed all but the shortest familiarisation and training flights for the two following weeks. The first parachute jumps over Antarctica featured among those few flights before the weather closed out all flying. Chief Boson's mate, Robert R. Johnson, was assigned US Army Search and Rescue Instructor, Sergeant London, as Shadow Observer. Sergeant London brought a parachute with him and thought up a story that made dedicating time and energy to making the first jumps over the ice seem like a reasonable use of Navy time and resources. On receiving permission, London made the first jump, then trained Johnson in parachute technique in the time it took the R4D they were on to reach 2,000 feet, at which the bosun's mate made the second jump, shortly after followed by the third jump made by the parachute rigger, Corporal Sprigg. I don't know if they wrote up a formal report on the practice to justify their research, but they got the first, forming the exclusive, for the time being, Polar Silk Society. Johnson tells the story in Thomas Henderson's documentary, Boats, available from Graceful Willow Productions, which I recommend because the range and warmth of the reminiscences make for compelling viewing. A tractor party led by Vernon Boyd set out to establish a fuel cache near the Rockefeller Mountains, 300 nautical miles to the southeast of Little America 4. Each LVT towed a cargo sled loaded with five tons of materials and a smaller sled loaded with emergency supplies, I guess to leave something useful at the surface if the main body of each unit went down a crevasse. At the very tail end of the transit caravan, a lonely punter in an ad hoc wooden structure planted trail flags every half mile. The vehicles performed well and the excursion yielded a small cache of geological samples from Washington Ridge and Mount Franklin. With only a fifth of the expected length of PSP runway, the aircraft would rely on their skis for getting airborne and landing. Wheeled aircraft can get aloft with more payload than those operating on skis, but removal of the wheels helped make up for this shortfall by reducing the airframe's net weight by a few hundred kilograms. Fucking plovers! What a noise! Ah, oh, terrible! As with previous expeditions, the engine oil was removed from the aircraft engine sumps after each flight and preheated on a stove before each flight. Engine blocks were warmed to starting temperatures using custom fitted canvas sleeves and rubber ducting attached to heating units, getting the therms where they were needed while reducing the likelihood of setting fire to the airframe as happened during projects led by Wilkins and Bird when more ad hoc systems were applied. When flying recommenced, Paul Seipel used the Norseman and the one-assembled L5 Grasshopper to make measurements to determine the direction and rate of barrier ice movements either side of Roosevelt Island. The R4Ds undertook a series of 10 long-distance photographic survey flights. Crews had to rock the aircraft vigorously from the wingtips to break the skis out of built-up ice and snow, and once more applied JATO bottles to help achieve flying speed with maximum operational loads. The aircraft generally flew in pairs, another pair always waiting on standby at Little America in case anything went wrong out in the boonies and required airlift or airdrop support. This marks only the second time common airframes were applied in Antarctica for mutual support and the first time they flew at the same time to ensure that support was close at hand if needed. Some teething troubles prevented such formation efforts, but for the most part it served the expedition well. A note about aircraft skis. Skis work by melting the snow or ice beneath them and sliding over the resulting liquid water. The friction involved can heat the skis up, which isn't a big deal in wooden units, but can be problematic in metal ones. Where wooden skis accept and dissipate heat slowly, metal ones tend to melt a puddle around themselves after landing and taxiing to a standstill. As the heat is lost to the atmosphere through radiant and convection paths, the water surrounding the skis can refreeze, locking the aircraft in place.
The only solutions available at the time were to keep repositioning the aircraft as its skis cooled after a landing, never giving the resulting puddles time to refreeze, the skis eventually cold soaking and no longer melting the ice beneath them, or chipping and melting the skis out after the fact. Aircraft with hydraulically operated skis, such as the LC-130 Hercules of the 109th Air Wing of the New York Air National Guard, presently used to fly between Christchurch and McMurdo Station and the Pole through the Austral Summers, can land with their skis fully down and then raise them above the wheels after the aircraft taxis to its shutdown, the hot skis cooling well clear of the ice and snow. I just think they're neat. The far-flung assortment of ships provided previously unseen meteorological granularity and forecasts for the flying program exceeded previous expeditions' accuracy and precision by a sizeable factor. On the 16th of February, two R4Ds, the MGM documentary notes it as four, one carrying Rear Admiral Byrd, headed to the South Pole and flew on another 200 miles beyond it. The oxygen storage and distribution systems, numbering among the articles the aircrew removed from the R4Ds prior to taking off from the Philippine Sea, part of a successful initiative to lighten the aircraft and thereby ensure their safety getting airborne, meant the crew experienced hypoxia throughout much of the flight. People experiencing oxygen deprivation due to high altitudes get silly, experience headaches, fail to worry about things that should concern them, and eventually pass out none of which are good while blatting along at 180 knots above 10,000 feet. The flight to the pole in the Ford Trimotor also didn't feature supplemental oxygen, but that dearth of life-giving gas was less noticeable at the time because the people involved weren't accustomed to having it available on demand, and so didn't miss it. Gus Shin notes, with some chagrin, in the documentary Ice Eagles, that the oxygen systems might have been better left in place given the number of high altitude flights the Little America 4 flying program called for. For additional discomfort, the heating systems failed on both aircraft, but again, tell that to Burnt Balkan and see if you get any sympathy. While over the geographic turning point, Bird lobbed a box containing the flags of all 54 members of the United Nations out the door. While Bird was flying to the pole, Robert R. Johnson was heading out onto the sea ice with a small party in a weasel. That's the tracked vehicle, not the animal. To hunt seals to keep the dog teams fed. The weasel broke through the sea ice and, having had its watertight compartment bungs removed for some reason that must have made sense to someone at the time, the vehicle, designed to float, sank, stranding the hunting party seven miles from Little America 4. They walked back, Johnson chagrined at having to report the loss of the vehicle in water too deep to stand up in, to the duty officer. The duty officer, with R4Ds over the pole and carrying the officer in charge of Operation High Jump, had other things to think about that day, and Johnson gratefully accepted the freebie this afforded him. Plans to fly over and map the mountains of Victoria Land were abandoned when the North Wind, tasked with leading the Central Group ships back out of the pack ice, couldn't establish the necessary fuel cache in McMurdo Sound. The final R4D flights of Operation High Jump, an attempt to fill gaps in the aerial photography of the Horlick Mountains, proved unsuccessful due to poor visibility. The aircraft were mothballed for the long dark as the unstable weather of the Antarctic autumn kicked in. The newly built icebreaker Burton Island, sailing on its first commission, arrived at the Bay of Wales on the 22nd of February to retrieve the shore party. Little America 4's tents, vehicles and R4D airframes were left behind, as ready for the coming winter as their occupants and crews could make them. And while I like the idea of turning up in the Bay of Wales and finding six intact and well-preserved DC-3s, I suspect they're somewhere on the seafloor by now, the shelf ice beneath them having spat them into the Southern Ocean as berg-lofted flotsam that then became jetsam as the ice melted in the northward drift. The ship departed the Bay of Wales on the 23rd, and that was the last anyone saw of Little America's 3 and 4. The bulk of the Central Group arrived in New Zealand waters in early March, 
though the Philippine Sea already passed through on its way back to Connecticut. The Western Group The Western Group spent several days in the vicinity of the Balleny Islands, shaking down their procedures and equipment, no one in the group having encountered sea ice or icebergs before. Captain Charles Bond sent his attendant destroyer, the USS Henderson, and oiler, the USS Capricorn, away to act as meteorological outposts for the flying program, while his seaplane tender, the USS Karatuk, spent several days fogbound in the vicinity of the Balinese. The Karatuk's Sikorsky H03 got airborne sometime on the 24th of December to recon ice conditions from on high. On the 1st of January 1947, a polar air mass fell off the continent, bringing with it clear, cold air suitable for the Mariner flying boat to get on with their long-range surveying. Lieutenant Commander Bunger, who I like to think of as Lieutenant Commander Bunger Bunger, piloted Baker 1 over the Balinese and south toward the continent, while the Currituck steamed east to try to stay in the patch of good weather the Continental Air Mass provided. The flight turned back before reaching the mainland coast because of low cloud, but after a long time riding the stern of their mothership, the Mariners were on task. The following day, Baker 1 and Baker 3 flew in tandem to the Oaths coast and photographed what the clouds allowed and sighted many mountain peaks reaching past their 10,000 foot flight path. On the 4th, the aircraft again flew in tandem to photograph the coast from Smith Inlet on the Oaths coast to Cape Freshfield on the George V coast, the crews experiencing difficulties from hypoxia in spite of the Mariner airframes retaining their oxygen systems. The Western Flying Program took pause on Cruzen's request to supply long-range aerial reconnaissance to the Central Group on the 6th of February, the Karatuk steaming eastwards to stand by to stand by until the 13th, poor weather preventing the Mariners providing the requested service, and the north wind finding its path regardless. Clear weather on the 22nd allowed the Mariners to get back to work, Bakers 1 and 3 heading in opposite directions to try to make up for lost time, but thwarted nonetheless by bad weather after four hours of aerial photography through patchy cloud. On the 24th, the Karatuk encountered a Japanese whaling operation, a factory ship, one of its chasers and its tanker. Japanese whalers began heading south in the late 19th century and prior to the Second World War, the Japanese fleets were on the uptick. While nowhere approaching the scale of Norwegian or even German efforts in the Southern Ocean, the Japanese were certainly there more so than the Australians or the Americans. During the war, all able-bodied mariners were put to the task of expanding the super-happy funtime East Asia co-prosperity sphere, and the whales to the south of the Pacific Ocean got a temporary reprieve. General Douglas MacArthur, placed in charge of the rubble and starvation that comprised post-war Japan, ordered two tanker ships be converted to factory whaling vessels, and sent what Japanese sailors remained south to bring back bulk protein to keep the population fed. A humanitarian effort to prevent hundreds of thousands of people starving might seem a long way from the Japanese whaling of the present era, and it is, but that's how post-war Japanese whaling kicked off. A Bolshe American elevated to the effective role of military dictator over a former enemy nation, mostly to keep him out of US politics seeing a quick and inexpensive path to maintaining his power in the form of not letting everyone under his aegis die. In spite of gaps in the photographic coverage behind them, Captain Bond pressed on westward to find good flying weather. On the 26th, the Mariner, Baker 1, overflew the coast incorporating Commonwealth Bay. The following day, both Mariners headed inland to measure the plateau height along separate tracks. Baker 1, under Lieutenant Commander Bunger's command, again, found the record height that flight of 8,500 foot of ice lying above sea level. Another gap in aerial photography coverage arose between the Cook Ice Shelf and Commonwealth Bay when the Karatuk experienced strong swells that precluded lowering the flying boats. Kenneth Bertrand, writing in Americans in Antarctica, 1775 to 1948, makes a big deal about the Western Group overflying the coast sighted by Wilkes, ignoring the fact that they weren't where Wilkes ever was, and that most of what he charted as coastline was later sailed through by Ross.
Bertrand also asserts that inland features on the stretch of coast matched that described by Wilkes. That so long as someone wrote that they thought the inland featured lots of ice in a dome shape, or drew same on a map, they were likely to be correct wherever they imagined they were on the Antarctic margin. And I don't find that matchup particularly compelling on its face, let alone in the face of the dearth of Wilkes' actual sightings of Antarctic coastlines. Even a clock as stopped as Wilkes will turn up the correct time twice a day and almost get England involved in the Civil War on the side of the Confederacy. An ice-free area in Vincennes Bay, another Wilkesian name applied for no good reason, along the Bud Coast, indicated a possible landing site, but no one went ashore due to adverse swell. Note that site though, as it will play a role in the next US naval venture south, and then an even bigger role in the IGY. Trying to find good flying weather, Captain Bond headed the Currituck back to the east on the 2nd, but ended up fogged in. Heading north to try to get out of the weather system, the Currituck and its attendant destroyer rendezvoused so the smaller ship could bunker fuel from the larger. They encountered Norwegian whale chasers and factory vessels on this track on the 5th of February. On the 7th, they steamed into good flying weather and tried to follow it eastward, but the swell once more prevented any flying. Heading west on the 10th, the Currituck encountered the British factory whaling vessel Balena at the edge of the pack. The Balena carried two war surplus supermarine walrus flying boats named Boojum and Snark, hangering them on its stern. The ship could launch these single-engine biplanes on a catapult system similar to that employed on the Schwabenland and retrieve them in a similarly similar drag sail and crane arrangement. These doughty aerial steeds, designed for fleet artillery spotting but mostly used for search and rescue during the war, lightened of all military fixtures and fittings and even losing their wheeled undercarriage to save weight, acted as whale spotters for the British funded fleet, regularly vectoring chaser boats onto the largest numbers of the largest examples of the most profitable species, though the Norwegian mariners filling most of the crew berths felt the aircraft a bad omen, given the loss of Leif Lear and Ingveld Schreiner during their Christmas Day 1929 joy flight to the Balleny Islands and not back again. The success of the Balena's aerial operations dispelled the disquiet, and two more walrus airframes went south aboard the Norwegian factory vessel Willem Barents, though without catapult gear they had to take off from the water with a full fuel load, which wasn't the airframe's strong suit, even when factory fresh. Anywho, aerial support of whaling fleets was hitting its straps. That's not the last we'll hear of the supermarine walrus in Antarctica, but more than enough for now. On the 11th of February, both mariners got airborne, and Lieutenant Commander Bunger's flight discovered a substantial ice-free area to the east of the Shackleton Ice Shelf. The Bunger Hills, unofficially the Bunger Oasis, featured lakes and enough tough sediment surface algae and lichens to receive misinterpretation in newspapers as being vegetated and warm though I guess algae and lichens count as vegetation. Just not the sort of newspaper conjures when it uses the words vegetated oasis. Though come to think of it, a complete lack of brain activity would explain doggerel the Gallagher brothers pass off as lyrics. A landing on one of the lakes allowed sampling and turned up brine, explaining the lake's remaining liquid at such low temperatures and hinting at a marine incursion origin. Bunger flew on along the Knox coast as far as the Gaussberg, while Commander Rogers in Baker 3 delineated the Shackleton ice shelf, photographed some uncharted coastal nun attacks, and flew inland to find the dome reached 6,000 feet above mean sea level. And it's getting cold and dark, so I'm going to cut that there. <clears throat> I'm in the shelter shed halfway along Queenscliff Main Pier hoping to knock this one out and finish covering Operation High Jump before the sun goes down and I can no longer read so poor weather curtailed flying and the ships continued west to Princess Reinhild Kist 
ship's crew got their first glimpse of Antarctica along the Kemp coast on the 17th of February. Captain Bond continued west, no longer concerned with capturing a complete photographic record of the mainland coast, as he was eager to sail beyond the Gunneris Bank, where the swell might not affect flying operations so much. The Currituck reached this goal on the 21st, and on the 22nd, the mariners overflew the eastern and southern sides of Amundsen Bay, over the Prince Harold coast, and along the western side of Lutzelholm Bay. Flying alongside the Rondan Mountains at 10,000 feet, Lieutenant Kreitzer estimated that the mountains rose another 3,000 feet above the aircraft. Survey photographs from this stretch of coast offer spectacular views of the glaciers falling to the sea after breaching the wall of rocks, plugging the plateau to the south. In the following days, the Lars Christensen coast, the Amory Ice Shelf and the Prince Charles Mountains received aerial photography attention but the shores of Prids Bay could only be surveyed by the camera trained on the radar screen, due to low cloud. The final flight in the series took off on the 1st of March. Baker 1 failed to get airborne due to fuel line problems, but Baker 3 surveyed the Ingrid Christensen Kist and took the first aerial survey photographs of the ice-free Vestfold Hills. On March 3rd, Captain Bond issued orders for the ships of the Western Group to head north once more taking parallel tracks to maximise sonar bathymetry coverage en route to Bass Strait. The MGM film arising from the footage the observers of the various military branches involved showed the crew of the Karatuk catching a Ross seal and noted that it and six leopard seals went north with the ship, though it didn't mention whether they went north as pelts, pickled specimens, or alive and living the seal equivalent of the life of Riley. The Currituck copped a storm that rolled Baker II, the unassembled and unused Martin Mariner, overboard, though the other ships skirted the system and got by unscathed. The ships steamed into Sydney Harbour in formation on the 14th of March 1947, job well done. The various weather and accident setbacks cost the aerial mapping program so much time that only 25% of the originally projected area received photographic coverage. Further, without ground control points, over half of the 70,000 aerial survey images lacked utility for cartography. Further, further, the rushed installation of the Trimetragon camera arrays in the R4D and Mariner airframes meant they weren't baffled against wind blast. This led the camera operators to work their apparatus while wearing thick gloves. The extra time it took to load the cameras while gloved up meant they didn't have all three cameras operating simultaneously a lot of the time, and a lot of the ground covered by the flights was documented solely by the vertical camera. As much as US geographic interests derided the outcomes of the Nazi efforts aboard the Schwabenland in 1938, the US Navy's work, while far more intensive, couldn't provide much in the way of more geographically interesting or more navigationally useful outcomes. The images from the Trimetragon flights were stored for later use if anyone should ever claim to know the coastlines and the landmarks the R4Ds and Mariners flew over, but otherwise remained unanalyzed and unused. What Operation High Jump did do was give thousands of US military personnel a taste of the challenges they would face if hostilities with Soviet Russia ever kicked off over the top of the planet. Operating in extreme circumstances provided experience and insights military planners, leaders and personnel couldn't gain from simply thinking about the high latitudes. And while each death is a tragedy in its own right, that crews and coordinated so many ships, aircraft, vehicles and people in such intense exercises with the loss of only four lives is amazing. Admiral Cruzen's own son was killed in a hunting accident back home during the course of the project, but he carried on with the sort of dogged commitment to responsibility you expect of an admiral who earned their flag rank the hard way. As a side effect, Operation High Jump also sustained Richard Byrd's legend as Mayor of Antarctica, with most passing references to the project citing him as its leader, in spite of his largely symbolic role falling his way to prevent him sticking his oar in and causing problems for the people trying to get shit done. MGM tasked Bird with recreating key moments in the polar flight on set, filming him pretending to navigate 
and to jettison materials out of a mock-up of an aircraft fuselage into the blasting slipstream, barehanded in the allegedly unheated aircraft. To interlace with footage from the expedition in what became the 1948 release, The Secret Land, which won the Oscar for technical excellence that year. The film did its best to play up drama, positing that the pole flight returned on one engine, filming tense interior sequences to juxtapose against footage of an R4D landing with one propeller feathered. But it's not an especially exciting movie, even if you do care about birds' well-being in the narrative it establishes, which I don't. Bird complained bitterly to anyone who would listen that he felt the film underplayed his role in Operation High Jump because he was a cock-headed egomaniac and getting increasingly unable to spot when he should shut his dumb mouth as he aged. The US State Department still kept its options open regarding whether or not it would acknowledge territorial claims in Antarctica. While many proclamations were made and claimant notes were deposited or dropped from a passing aircraft over the Antarctic landscape, the wording of those proclamations and notes took care to record that the claim was made by an individual, not by the Naval Task Force or the US government. This loyally fidgy-widginess allowed the State Department to add the claims to any subsequent official US territorial claim package or to deny the claims meant anything if another nation tried to use similar individuals' claims in bolstering their own stake in the South. A diplomatic case of having your cake and having my cake and eating all of any available cake. Operation High Jump made waves in New Zealand and Australia. Head of the Department of Scientific and Industrial Research, physicist Dr Ernest Marsden, urged New Zealand to establish a meteorological station in the Ross Dependency and to monitor cosmic rays during that period of increased sunspot activity as a means to forestall any potential US presence. The fear at the time being that Byrd would follow through on previously stated ambitions to establish a permanent US presence in the far south. Bird also stated that he might find hidden valleys full of verdant plant growth and otherwise extinct animal species in his previous spoutings, too. But the idea of an unmatched US presence in New Zealand's long, relatively, established claim on the continent put the wind up many geographically-minded Kiwi bureaucrats and politicos. Marsden's proposal went up the chain for consideration by Prime Minister Peter Fraser, but the nation didn't feel the ship suited to ice operations at the time, and the national economy couldn't encompass an Antarctic venture in 1946 as the nation demobbed its soldiers from foreign climes and mourned its many war dead. I should note here that New Zealand lost more of its population per capita than any other nation in both world wars. It is and was a small nation, so it didn't take huge numbers of losses to reach that death rate, and it wasn't a matter of Kiwi fighting personnel being crap. Everyone who encountered them either as an ally or as an enemy, rated the New Zealanders as fierce and competent. They died in large numbers per capita because they were in the thick of the fighting and went at it hammer and tong. It's an interesting side note that the Sikorsky HNS-1 helicopter aboard the United States Coast Guard Northwind made the first helicopter flight in New Zealand airspace when it lifted off the stern helipad while the ship was in Otago Harbour on February 23, 1947, as the expedition's central group staged in New Zealand on its way north. Canberra, also wind put up by Operation High Jump, reanimated the corpse of pre-war Antarctic planning and sought a path south to demonstrate effective occupation over the area explored on the Australian government dollar. Journalist Osmar White wrote that the Australians buried in the region of Antarctica over which the Australian flag had waved gave the nation a greater stake in the place than any other country. By that logic, if Byrd crashed and died on the Live Glacier in his Ford Trimotor, America would own that, and Britain owned the area near One Ton Depot and at the foot of the Beardmore. Corpse-based territoriality doesn't really work as a thing, but people will try on any gambit if they're on the geographic back foot. Australia also faced economic and logistic problems repatriating far-flung demob soldiers and mourned many dead, but had enough economic Delta V left in the tank to see Antarctica as part of its own post-war development. A massive immigration scheme lay in the offing to jumpstart the Australian post-war economy and Prime Minister Ben Chifley incorporated Antarctica into his plans for an Australian golden age. 
Australian diplomat John Cumston, one of those responsible for the 1939 publication of the Australian Antarctic map, urged the nation to send Catalina flying boats south to make an aerial survey of Wilkes Land, preparatory to the generation of an updated map, potentially forestalling any mileage the Americans might gain by mapping and landing on a coast already associated with an American explorer, albeit a coast that explorer never saw on account of being crap. Without a Deception Island-style safe harbour anywhere near the proposed area of operations, Australia's war-weary Catalinas weren't up to the task of an aerial survey over the coasts of the Antarctic regions claimed by Australia without the support of seaplane tenders the Royal Australian Navy didn't possess. A follow-up suggestion posited sending Australia's long-range bombers, four-engined Lincolns, developments of the Lancaster. With auxiliary fuel tanks from end to end in the fuselage, it's possible a Lincoln could cover the distances involved, so long as nothing went wrong mechanically, but finding an aircrew willing to trust those most complex of all British piston engine aircraft to fly for that long without anything going wrong might have proved difficult, but that's moot, because no one other than Cumston ever took the proposal seriously. In lieu of actual new data, Cumston and Sir Douglas Mawson were set to task drawing together as much new data on Antarctic geography as possible to bring the new map into being before the US Hydrographic Office could get its Operation High Jump outcomes to the printers. They called on Argentine and Chilean contacts and reached out to the Royal Geographic Society, the Norwegian Whaling Society and the British Polar Committee to try to get as much new data as possible and to give this cartographic jump on the American effort its best possible chance. But the Australian government knew a map on its own wouldn't carry a lot of prestige and credibility in the face of what the US was thought to be bringing to the party. Australian diplomats asked that the US Navy ask for Australian permission to operate in Australian territory. Instead of dignifying this beggar's gambit for recognition, their US counterparts responded that the US didn't intend entering the area claimed by Australia, even though they did. Bird, Cruzen and Seipel all did their bit to allay oceanial fears about the US attempts to annex Antarctica out from under their own claims asserting that they never made or sought to make claims over the territory they visited or overflew while staging in New Zealand en route back to the USA, and then went on the record as having made territorial claims over record areas of Antarctic territory once they got home. Robert R. Johnson did his bit offering anecdotes by which to make this episode more than a brief overview of the project, speaking in Thomas Henderson's documentaries, Boats and Ice Eagles, available through Graceful Willow Productions. He kept one of the puppies used in PR opportunities in the lead-up to the Task Force 68 sailing, naming the Malamute High Jump. I don't think Chief Boson's mate Johnson would like this series or my opinions about Richard Bird, but I like Chief Boson's mate Johnson. Sending out warm greetings and fish and chip appreciation to my skipper, Chris, for this episode.